1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Gallagher Shots podcast. It's Daryl Mitchell-Hill here today, and we have the first of a special series of episodes we are calling The Magpie Memoirs, in which we sit down for an in-depth interview with some familiar faces from the Newcastle United family. I'm beyond delighted to welcome as our very first guest for this series, BBC Newcastle's Newcastle United commentator Matthew Razor. Hi Matthew, how are you doing?
3: Hi Daryl, firstly thanks for uh, asking me to come on and I'm really pleased to be with you on the show and uh, also your first guest on your new show and um, yeah I hope it goes really well for you but yeah nice to be with you at the start.
2: Brilliant, that's great. Um, I am from this moment onwards going to just refer to you as your nickname is Razor because it's going to be far easier for me and I'll not get confused with myself. Um, right. So we'll start this um, with talking about your childhood. So your youth and, and growing up. Um, so generically, where, where did you get your first taste of football in Newcastle United?
3: Uh, well, I mean, this will all be familiar to you because we're the same age and we grew up at the same time. Um, and yeah. started following Newcastle at the best time to follow them in the modern era, in the mid-90s. Um and it was it was a great time wasn't it and i mean so many people's passion for football and for newcastle was um was developed through that period which might make the current situation harder to swallow for fans when you've been introduced to a great team and a great time and actually what i thought was a, a great era for football the mid 90s i know we all get a bit nostalgic as we get older but um I'm always looking back at that period, not just for Newcastle, but generally, um, because the Premier League had started. It was becoming um, a bigger thing with more television and media coverage. And it was just fantastic. And Newcastle United, probably the same for you. Well, I know the same for you and and for many people listening, Uh, whatever age you are. uh, It was my life just following the team, um, watching, reading, listening to absolutely everything I could. Um, you know, we'd all go out and play football wearing the black and white stripes when we could. (laughs) And it was, um, it was just a great time. I had a friend in my street, actually, you might well be listening to this. I speak to him occasionally now called Billy and he had, um, a strip, the full strip, uh, with Andy Cole, uh, well, the name Uh and number on the back. And it was, he, he was the one that really got me into football in a big way because, um, he had Sky at his dad's house along the street. So uh, when he was there, I would go and watch the games with him. rest of the time, I would obviously listen on the radio or I'd follow everything um, on teletext or CFAX um, and you read the newspapers a lot um, because, of course, we didn't have the internet back then. So that was really my way into football, probably the 94, 95 season, the start of it, uh, I can really remember. But I did have a sticker album from the previous year, the Merlin uh, Premier League sticker album from 93, 94. So it was about that time. Um, And as I say, it was just a great time, wasn't it, for football? It was. Especially for Newcastle.
2: It was. um, You know, I had, like you say, the launch of the Premier League um, and it was was almost as though there was an influx of money. Um, We really... As a club, we came out of the blue with the promotion in 92-93. So we missed the first season. But we came into to the season in 93-94 and we exploded onto the scene, really, with mm-hmm. a brand of football that, you know, obviously we're still talking about today. Um, We had a good solid four or five years of that brand of football and it created some wonderful memories and moments. And, you know, like you say, a whole generation of kids in the North East fell in love with Newcastle United based on that premise.
3: Well, absolutely. And I I wish I'd been a little bit older just so I could experience properly that promotion and then that first year in the Premier League. But um, obviously, like you do, you look back at it and and I'm forever on YouTube watching games (laughs) and goals or seeing the clips that get repackaged and put out on Twitter because um, it was a really special time because things were happening and, and they were building towards something. On the pitch and off the pitch, and the transformation um, led by Kevin Keegan, um, who is my favourite football person by far. And there's some great people to choose from, but but no one had the impact at Newcastle that Kevin Keegan had. And he was, along with Sir John Hall, spearheading things. And from the team on the pitch to the the way that St James's Park looked at the start of the '90s to ten years later um it was it was such an exciting time wasn't it and the progress was was incredible i mean you think about the way clubs progress now um have any of them really gone at, at that rate obviously manchester city we know their fortunes have been transformed but um not many clubs progress like newcastle did like we did in the mid 90s mm-hmm. it was fantastic yeah
2: I mean, we we like you say we we skyrocketed up up the division, um, and and just basically established ourselves as one of the top teams in the country, um, albeit without the the uh, the glamour and the, the the trophy or whatever that goes with that, um, but yeah, um, so we'll we'll go on to your first kit now. I'll I'll, I'll quickly start this by saying my first kit didn't come till what I would say was relatively late. And my first kit was the uh, denim blue. A wear shirt of um, 95, 96, or was it 96, 97? It may have been across both seasons, but it was the denim blue. and uh, We wore it in the final uh, derby at Rocker Park when we beat them 2-1. Um, yeah. So what was your first kit?
3: Well, my first kit was um, was a home shirt, and it was from that that period um, at the start of the Premier League. And it was the, the Asics or Asics. Um, black and white stripes with the black collar and uh, the blue star logo with um, some of the images of the city in the background. So, yeah. you know, 94. Um, I've still got it. Uh, I've got it with me now, even though you can't see uh, in size, large boys. Um, <laughs> and I've got I've got loads of kits from, from that era, from the 90s. Um, of course, they don't fit now, but um, thankfully, and probably more by accident than design, I've kept them in in a sealed bag inside a sealed box so they're all in really good condition but they can't be worn because they don't fit mm-hmm. um and when you see how much things go for on ebay and other websites now you realize the true value of some of these great kits from from the 90s i mean the adidas ones are are you know, nearly all of them fantastic you know, from that period from 95 mm-hmm. to possibly mid 2000s early 2000s but yeah that was the first one um I had it I mean I still you know love the look of it and the feel quality is really good um but yeah that's a, it's, it's always a special shirt isn't it you'll be the same with it the 96 97 away kit because yeah, it was your first one absolutely. you'll always love it won't you
2: that's it and when I started to uh, get back into it recently a few years ago the first time i went on ebay to look for a shirt that was the first one i went for to to try and regain it because rather foolishly to us at the well it seems foolish now but at the time it didn't really seem that that much of an issue but back then that particular shirt that i had with shira 9 printed on the back of it it was it was sort of like passed on as a hand-me-down to to somebody else who would have got more use out of it than what i did um so we'll go from your first kit there like you say it's a memorable kit from a memorable time when was your first game?
3: Uh, the, well, the first the first match that I went to uh, at St James's Park was um, actually not in the Kevin Keegan era. Sadly, just missed it um, by a couple of months. Um, I've got the program, but I'm, I have to be honest with you, it is uh, an eBay purchase from a few months ago because I didn't get one at the time uh it was saturday the 1st of march 1997 southampton at home uh, and when newcastle played southampton in that era more often than not matt latissier was um up to his old tricks and uh they lost the game 1-0 i was behind the goal when uh, when southampton scored um so pretty tough introduction to following Newcastle United there inside the ground wasn't it but actually maybe um a more realistic way of um of learning about the experience of supporting the club um in person but yeah Southampton at home March 1997 um and obviously Dalglish was manager and um, I mean at that time trying to still fight it out, I suppose, for the title, even though it wasn't as close, obviously, as the year before. But um, they had plenty to play for and they still had still had our great team intact, um, even though there were a few tweaks and then more change, unfortunately, was coming that summer. So it was great to see some of those players actually in the flesh. Just a shame um, that, that we <laughs> lost. Um, but that's probably the case for many fans at their first game. Uh, and in terms of watching the team, well, I can remember watching highlights and, and goals on television. Um, it, it would be some of the European games at the start of the 94-95 season when mm-hmm. Rob Lee scored those three headers, uh, for instance. I can remember that. Um, and then a few more games from around that time. And and like you, I'm sure, and many people listening of a similar age or probably older, um, the black and white videos that the club produced were um, yeah lifesavers in that respect because you were able to not only watch the action again and again on demand um like we can now just the touch of a button uh, but also go behind the scenes of the club so they were great as well for Mm. um yeah for helping you uh follow things closely as we did then
2: yeah and it's it's something you don't see that much of now obviously you know we mentioned there with it being like on demand and that but you know, there's still potentially a market out there for that kind of thing, even though the success on the pitch at the minute isn't something you want to keep reliving year after year. It's still nice to have as maybe a collector's item. And, you know, there's still highlights within that that you might want to go back and think, oh, yeah, that game, that season, you know, played really well, you know, bagged a few goals, etc. Um, but, yeah, it's one of those things now where it, it a lot of, a lot of the stuff is available online, but it's a mar- it's a marketing thing it's with you know not to delve into it too much because i want to save it for later but going into the way the clubs run at the moment and it's something that if the club needed to make a few extra quid it's it's an opportunity for them to have done that but obviously the rights now belong to the premier league and it, it's all got to be sorted out that way so maybe cost-wise it's not effective as it could be but it's still something i think people would some people would certainly enjoy to be able to relive seasons like that. I mean in particular just thinking about it off the top of my head right now, the season you probably want to relive the most would be the season we qualified uh for Europe um back at the start of the 2010s when we finished 5th. Uh, that would probably be a season that people probably want to relive quite quite regularly. Um so yeah, we we'll, so we'll move on from from that. Um, we'll we'll park that and we'll revisit some um, memorable moments from you in a short while. So we're going to talk about your career now. So mm. you you work for the BBC. Um, so tell us a bit about that and like uh, t- sort of timeframes and, and what you get up to.
3: OK, well, I mean, firstly, I know that I'm very lucky to to be in a position in the media uh, and to, to do what I do um, because it's what I've always wanted to do. And when you're passionate about football and when you love Newcastle United, to be able to follow them closely is... Is just amazing. Um, and also, actually, what, what I've learned over the last few years in particular is um, the sacrifices a lot of supporters make to do the same. Because, you know, where they're professionally, where we're traveling for work, there are fans, you'll know this, um, getting up very early um, or coming back very late when they've got to go to work to travel all around the country. Geography is against us. Um, in the Premier League and, and was in the Championship as well a, a few years ago. So nowhere is particularly close. And often you're travelling to see a, a game that's not going to go well and you come, or you're coming back from a, a really bad defeat. So the, the respect that I have and that um, I know my colleagues have for the fans who um, travel around and follow every game because they care is um, is massive. Um my particular role is, is Newcastle United commentator for BBC Radio Newcastle, and primarily it is to cover the matches. That's the main thing, um, to provide commentary uh, on the radio for the games. The club website, um, we, are, um, we have a broadcast rights agreement with the club to put the games on the radio, but as part of that, um, they take our coverage and stream it on their website, which is free of charge and, and available worldwide um, BBC website doesn't have the broadcast rights for Premier League or Football League action for local radio. So we can't put it on there. Um, But what that means is obviously our coverage is going round to a worldwide audience and it's always great to get some correspondence from from fans all over the world and we do and and that's really nice as well as we hear from uh, people closer to home. Um, I've been in that position since November 2016, Uh, When we were in the championship, and I'll come back to that in a second, but quickly like leading up to that, um, I started at the BBC uh, in the summer of 2006. I'd just left school and I was looking for some media work experience and I found a placement for two months.
1: For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits, not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, movie night and Sarah's back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life.
3: Um, I got in just before the deadline because I I saw it very late Um, and then they let me come in to work initially with the what was then the BBC Time website um, which had a few more features now it's it's um, different and it's mainly news Uh, but also did some radio stuff which is really what I wanted to do before going to university carried on doing that working on our sports show on a Saturday for free answering the phones and then did some other bits in the radio station through the week because I love football, yes, and I wanted to do football, but I also really, really like radio, love radio, mm-hmm. and I've always listened to it, music and, and sport and news. So um, I did a lot behind the scenes. Um, for a couple of years, I'd be I'd be there at half five every Saturday morning to press buttons to play out a pre-recorded program and then start answering the phones and stay all day for the sport, and I loved it. Um, and I would operate the studio desk because it, it, it bbc radio newcastle we have a lot of speech programs and um our studio setup changed a couple of years ago but for many years if it was a talk program the presenter wouldn't be in charge of the desk they'd be in a different room and you'd put the microphone on and they would talk so they could focus on presenting and someone else to do the technical stuff um yeah if anyone's listened to our total sports show that's how it used to work with the guests and, and contributors So I'd press the buttons for loads of programs, speech, um, news and sports and and music outside broadcasts. And that was great because it helped me understand radio better. But I was also doing sport bulletins, um, a bit of presentation by about 2009, covering for um, Simon Pride when he was off. Uh, Or at the time, Kevin Williams, who did our phone in on a Saturday. Um, And then the following year, I started to do the Saturday phone in. A couple of years later, um, the breakfast show, Sport Bulletins, um, was something that I started doing five days and then four days a week, and then that that led us to, um, you know, changing in in November 2016. I've done a lot of football commentary, non-league, um, which I, I loved, followed Gateshead closely, and still do um for many years and, and they almost got into the football league and um lost the playoff final and I'm still not over it because it was horrible. Um <laughs> but they were a great club to follow, some fantastic people, players, managers, um really nice atmosphere and vibe and set of fans. And also the FA Vars finals that we've covered involving mm-hmm. the Northern League teams in, in the in our area, which would be Tyneside, Wearside, Northumberland and, and sort of down just past Durham City. Yeah. Um so that was all great. Um, but I obviously I wanted to cover Newcastle United and I was very, very lucky to get the chance.
2: Mm-hmm. Of course, you took over, as you say, in, in, in November 2016, following on from the uh, the great Mick Laws. And if you're listening there, Mick, hello. Hope you're doing well. Keep safe and we'll see you soon. Um,
3: so... well, Mick, I just quickly doubt. I mean, Mick is... Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about Mick and um, I, I talk about Mick all the time with supporters, with listeners, because... Um, they quite rightly and quite understandably love Mick and always will. And so do I. And um, he is the best and he will never be bettered. And I say that with full respect to anyone else who's held the role either on commercial radio or the BBC. And there have been some fantastic broadcasters who've done that, award-winning broadcasters uh, who are on national TV and radio now, um, or broadcasters who still have a great relationship with the fans. But, you know, there was just... I think probably for people our age, there's just something really special about listening to Mick because not only was he brilliant, but the football that he was telling us about was pretty good a lot of the time as well. Mm-hmm. Big yeah. moments, huge, huge... Well, time in the club's history. He was there describing it. He was fantastic. Great voice, great commentator. And I'm very lucky that I've always had a, a really strong and good relationship with him because we work together as I say in the studio i would often be the one playing in the interviews or the jingles and talking to him while he was at the games um, but you know we, we're friends good friends and he's always supported me and helped me so really grateful to him I was very surprised when he left like you may have been I didn't expect it but Absolutely. it was all on yeah. his terms which was great and and I put together the the, the goodbye and tribute pieces for him and I think it shows how much he's respected, not just by listeners. I've never seen a reaction from, from audience members like it. I mean, we've got some popular presenters, um, but, but nothing to the level of Mick when, when he announced he was leaving. The, the amount of emails and letters, physical letters, and everything that we got was, was incredible uh, and deserved as well. But the likes of Alan Shearer, Said he would come on the radio and talk about Mick and, and talk to him. Now, doesn't that just tell you what a what a great broadcaster and, and man he oh, yeah. is in the way he's covered Newcastle United? So, um, yeah, he is he's a legend. He is the best, um, and I'm I'm very pleased that uh, he's doing well and and very happy to have such a great relationship with him.
2: As you say, he, he's covered the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows in, in his time covering covering the club. Um, I, I would. I dare say there's definitely more highs in his tenure than there was than there was lows um you know that like we say that that peak period in the 90s and the slight revival under under Bobby Robson in the early 2000s there with the the uh the goes into Europe and all of the all the bits of success and the wonderful football that we got to see at those points and then obviously going into the relegation of 2008-9 and the season in the championship but then we came back from that as well um so he's he's certainly covered a, a broad spectrum of emotions and moments and a period of the club's history. Um. So, your typical week in, yeah. in the life of a BBC radio commentator what what goes on during the week?
3: Ah, uh, pre coronavirus or post um, pandemic? Um, I'll, um, tell, I'll, I'll tell you both. I'll tell you how it is now, yeah. and I'll tell you how it how it should be, how it used to be. At the moment, um, what we'll be
2: getting back to soon, hopefully.
3: Hopefully, yeah, Um, yeah, for for every reason and and reasons that are bigger than football, of course. But Mm -hmm. uh, at the moment, um, we're still continuing to provide commentary on all the matches, which is really important. Um, BBC Local Radio, and this is a a director-level decision, all football commentary teams across the country, and there are loads in the Football League and some in non-league as well, uh, are not doing away matches because of the risk of travelling, picking something up and and bringing it back. Uh, Basically, um, it is dangerous. So away commentaries are coming from the studio now, which is something that I probably never expected to be doing. Um, And it is a little bit challenging. And I'll explain why, because we all watch football. But when you're watching it, you're not in control of what you're seeing. And it's the television directors. So in recent games, and we've we've done that since Brentford in the cup, which is probably a blessing in disguise, actually, that we weren't there, um, <laughs> given the way that went, because that would have been an awful journey back. Um, yeah. There's one member of the media actually I spoke to the um, the day after who was there, and uh, and he he made it back from Brentford for the last train, incredibly. Um, probably just wanted to get out there <laughs> and get away yeah. as quickly as possible. Um, but yeah, that was, um, that was a miserable night, but we're, um, we're watching, we were at Man City, um, and then the, the, um, this current policy was, was enforced from, um, pretty much the new year when, when we went back into lockdown. Um, we've got a couple of screens in the studio. Um, we link up through, um, a program that the BBC has to get what we call the clean feed of the pictures, which is the pictures Without any graphics or commentary, and it's the the pitch side microphone noise and the matches. So in that sense, it's clean. It's as if you were there in the ground just watching, but with you know, you're watching the game and you're hearing the sounds, and that's it. Um, and it goes through goes through um, an iPad onto the screens in the studio. But of course, if they cut away from the action, well, you, you don't know what's going on, so you can't tell people. There were a couple of times when we've had shots or there've been challenges or, you know, the players holding each other and the camera goes straight to the referee or the players involved or to a replay. And because even though we've got the noise from the ground, there might be a whistle, but you don't know exactly what's happened. And sometimes, uh, and for some reason at the moment, TV directors have a fascination with Graham Jones and they keep putting their camera on him for ages. and, And we're trying to, describe what's happening on the pitch and you can't see so that's a challenge and there's ways of getting around that you just get a bit more analysis you give out the score again you you know you you promote total sport on the station i phone in every night that thing that bridges the gap but that's hard um but at the minute um we still have our show as i mentioned total sport um and um i'll not plug it again um on your show um but i hope obviously people are aware of it anyway but we're on every night, myself and Nick Barnes, our Sunderland commentator. Nick actually used to commentate on Newcastle in the late 90s to early 2000s, uh, but he's done Sunderland for, for nearly 20 years now. Um, but a lot of that is done from home now um, via mm-hmm. an app on our um, BBC phones um, and other devices, um, whereas previously we'd be in the studio every night. Um, but I still prepare in the same way for the games in terms of notes that I take um, I've got two pages of, a, of slightly bigger than A4 in a book. Um, I use different colours just to make things stand out a bit more. Um, I'll, I'll share with you a couple of pictures. I do more on the opposition than I need to, but that's more for my benefit, just so I know who's who and what's going on. And then I can filter out, you know, what, what is and isn't relevant. And then Newcastle stuff that I think is relevant to the game or players who might be reaching a milestone or, Scored in this fixture last year, or on a good or bad run of form, and I have that in front of me during the match, and talk about it in the build-up, use things um, to illustrate the, the debate, and then um, and then drop in when it's relevant during the match. I do less and less now. Increasingly, some commentators probably do very little. Um, some will probably do more than I do. It's just a personal choice. Um, but obviously, we've got the games we don't have many midweek games at the moment. So games Saturday or Sunday, um, I'll be on the show five nights a week. Um, I'll be in the building, um, a couple of days a week as well at home, the rest of the time. And, and we do the manager interviews now pre-match via zoom. And, and we still get to speak to Steve Bruce. I'm pleased to say one-on-one, even though it's over zoom, then the TV interview follows, uh, and then newspapers get the chance to ask at the end of the TV section. Um, That's how it works usually the day before a game. Um, Pre-pandemic quickly, um, I'd be in the office probably Tuesday to Friday. Um, I'd go to the training ground to see Rafa or Steve um, and we'd sit in in a room one-on-one. Sometimes Graeme Courtney from Talk Sport was there. Graham's fantastic. You've probably heard him on Talk Sport. He used to be the club's press officer in the 90s. Loads of stories, great company. Um, and, And we would be in the room together. Sometimes it would just be me. Then you go back, edit the interview for for broadcast, for transmission, once the embargo, which there usually is, to give people time to turn the material around into video, audio, or print um, has been lifted. Um, And and that that would be it. I'd spend the week preparing for the game, editing interviews, maybe going out to do other interviews, speaking to a player if we could. um, And just getting ready for the match, building up for the game at the weekend. So that's that's how it would, would have worked and hopefully will again when things get back to normal.
2: Yeah, so I'll revisit a couple of points from, from what you've just talked about yeah. there. So in terms of when you're speaking to, to Steve Bruce, I'm sure you would prefer or you do prefer the face-to-face element. Do you feel like when you're doing it over Zoom, do you feel like there's a restriction? I know I've heard a few of the, the, the written press guys talking about not having a platform in which to ask follow up. Now I know you get Steve Bruce one to one, but do you still feel like there's a restriction there?
3: Yeah, it's not the same, and it can't be the same because life isn't, and football isn't. Um, this is the the way this is done is is um, the way it's done around around the country. All football clubs are doing this. It's not a Newcastle thing. Quite how it works specifically is is down to each each club. Um, yeah, it's not the same because if you're in the room with someone, you can. You just get a better feel for the situation. You can develop a, a better rapport. And I have to say, Steve Bruce has been fantastic to deal with. I didn't know him before he came to Newcastle, but um, I, he, he could not have been better. Um, and sometimes the side that you see when you're in the room before and after you've you've recorded, um, you know, obviously a lot of people don't get to see that. They don't hear the stories. They don't. They don't. You know, get get to experience that. And, and I kind of wish. A lot of people did because then some of the criticism that he's getting that's personal, probably he wouldn't get because um, he's a fantastic fella. And, and, and the football side, I understand, he understands, but the personal stuff, I think if people knew him a, a bit better and saw the side that sometimes you see when you're not recording, people would actually really like him and want to him, but, but it's the football that matters. I know, um, in terms of the written media, well, I don't want to speak for them, but, but they would get their own section usually where they could sit in a room, uh, in a circle probably and, and, and talk to him and have a, a longer chat and someone could ask a couple of questions and then people can just, just chip in and they could be going at it for, yeah, 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe. So you lose all of that when it's all, all over zoom, but, um,
0: Positions are not employees or agents of this hospital.
3: I know there have been some issues with access for the written media over Zoom uh, recently, um, but they are still doing it at least and speaking to the media. Um, and, and I guess we've been quite fortunate that we still, as rights holders, get to speak to them one-on-one.
2: Yeah, and you know we've mentioned there the, the the idea of a, a restriction, and I think that's what's probably impacting the written press at the minute. Is this? The, the, it's all enclosed and you know, the club have full control over the direction in which these conversations can go in. And if they don't like the tone or the direction in which it's going, they can just cut the feed and and sort of stop things dead in their tracks. Um, yeah. So we've talked about your yeah, typical week. So let's talk about match day itself. Yeah. How does match day itself work for Matthew Raisbeck?
3: Right. Uh, I mean, at the moment, uh, the access to the ground is not what it was. So this is um, since football resumed in June last year um you can only get in 90 minutes before kickoff now some some clubs are um a bit more relaxed and will let you in a little earlier um others stick stick to um that restriction although um the television cameras are allowed in earlier to set up um and it's just to limit contact and, and you know exposure to the possibly the virus so that does have an effect because we're getting to grounds later because you can't you can't go in um it doesn't matter for away games because they're in the studio and I'll just go in a couple of hours before um or, or three or four if um, if it's a night game and we've got um total sport on first yeah, which which we're, we appear on to preview the match um we but the minute we get to the ground you think you've got to have your temperature taken um some places check your bags as well you've got to fill out a form um, and just have, have that checked, get your accreditation, which is a lanyard and your pass, uh, normally a programme from the clubs because the clubs are still producing the most of them. And then you show into your seat, but at every ground I've been to now since last June, including Newcastle, you enter via um, a different door um, rather than through the media room. Or if you go through the media room, it's all closed and it's it's, um, it's stopped, so a media suite would have TVs, desks, um, there'd be uh, food and drink for the media. Usually all of that has stopped, um, for obvious reasons. And you've got less time in there. You're in a different seat now, but there's more space around you at St. James's. The broadcasters are in the media seats behind the benches. Um, but our, our position changes from match to match, depending on how busy it is. Southampton, we were right behind the Newcastle bench, um, which is great because you could hear loads of what was going on. Um, But normally we're on the back row. The written media are in the hospitality boxes behind the TV cameras um, just for distancing. Um, And there's no post-match interviews now. Um, There's only one for radio. And it's either Five Live or Talk Sports for national radio. uh, And we take their material or we take Match of the Days. So I don't have to stay around and do interviews and the players don't come out and do And do interviews either except with um, TV rights holders so the postmatch is a bit different which means we can leave earlier so it's really strange it's almost like you feel like you're doing half a job because you might you might not get in until about an hour before the game starts and then you're leaving within within 20 minutes previously Daryl I I mean you'll know because obviously you've seen us at games yeah Um, we would be if it was a home game we often Go there for about twelve on a Saturday, three hours before kickoff, because we'd be on an hour before. Um, we'd have something to eat. We'd chat to people, um, people around the club, other members of the media, other radio stations about the opposition. Plug in, test our kit, and uh, we had loads of time to do it. Walk around the ground just to soak up the atmosphere, and then the fans would start coming in from about about half one. Away games, you know, we travel really early. Sometimes you know, setting off at twelve and, and get their half three, four for a 7.45 kickoff because of our other mm-hmm. broadcast commitments. So there's less time involved now, and it's not the same. And Like I say, it feels like kind of half a job almost because um, you, you're not there for as long. And obviously, we're not doing away games at the moment either. Um, but in normal times a match day at full time, uh, I'd leave Ando with the broadcast kit. He knows how it works. He will either stay on, do the phone in, or pack it up and just keep hold of it. And I'd go down to the tunnel dressing room area, wherever pitch side, wait for Steve Bruce, um, and and try and speak to a couple of players as well. Send that back and, and tweet the best bits. But it's a bit different at the moment. But that's that's how it used to work and how it's how it's been working now. Um, what the future holds, though, who knows?
2: <laughs> it is. It's one of those things where I'm sure it's it's almost like when certainly in terms of going to games away from home. And obviously, there'll be a lot of interaction with supporters traveling. Certainly, if you're you're going further afield to the likes of maybe London or the West Midlands. And if if you're not taking the car, you could be taking the train. So, you'll get that interaction with supporters as as well. Um, And it's almost like you're sort of part of the away day experience. But then, not only are you sort of there as a supporter, you're also there in the capacity of working in terms of the fact that you're actually covering the game for media.
3: Yeah. Well... Travelling to the game is always exciting. The match itself often isn't, um, especially recently, unfortunately. But but going to the game is exciting. We all know that. Um, that's why we go, isn't it? Because while we think we know it's going to happen and often we're right, sometimes you get a surprise. And even if it goes well and you think it's going to go well, it, it's a great feeling. So that that anticipation, that build-up on a match day, and I know it's what it's what fans miss. Getting ready for the game, going to the game, and then being there, of course. And uh, I think you know we've realised more than ever um, just how hard it must be for fans at the moment for pretty much a full year to not be able to go and watch the team. And um, you know, even though sometimes it's it's difficult to watch, you'd rather be there than not. Um, and and I know it's tough for fans. So listen, I, I'm not complaining about about our, our situation. Just highlighting the the way it is and the differences now. But um, it is tough. And and you know, I mean, we've we've seen you on on the train and, and, and you know, you with other fans and groups of other supporters who come up and chat and, and and the cracks great. And people just want to talk about football. They just want to talk about the team. And um, that's something that that I miss as well. But also, you know, that buzz and the atmosphere in the city, or when you get off the train in London or wherever it is, or often for away games, I'll walk around the ground and try and speak to fans, record it and send it back, and we we'll play it out on the radio. And just that vibe and that atmosphere, um, the sense of anticipation in the air is is fantastic. Now you travel to a game, and if anyone's been in the city on a match day, um, even last summer, you know, when, when lockdown restrictions were being eased, you wouldn't know there was a game on. And it's it's just, it's surreal, it's weird, it's quite eerie. You know, we've, we've got the football back, thankfully, but we haven't got the spectacle and we haven't got what makes football special, unfortunately, and we won't until supporters are back in.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's quite clear to me that there's many of uh, the homes on Tyneside and any home of a Newcastle United fan, no matter where they are, really, in the country, will be uh, wallpaper being stripped off walls in you know, the people can't be there to you know, we, we as fans have lost our ability by not being there to help the team.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, we, we aren't there as an extra voice to to G them up or you know, to, to wind them up um to to help them. You know, the, the, the lack of fans in grounds has certainly affected some I think there's certainly a degree of effect it's had on teams. Um even in the current situation that we find ourselves in, you know, if fans had been in this ground at the start of this season, you just feel that something would have been different and whether or not that would have been hammering the manager for, for poor displays or hammering the players for poor displays. Um, it's something, or even egging them on into victory in some cases or being there to help them keep out a, a, an offensive action from a, a, a top, a top club, you know, um, it's it's something that is missing and I think that's certainly one of the things I miss is that, about not being at games and I also miss the idea of going away to games as well I, I, I'm missing away day, like you say it's all about the day itself it's often spoiled by the 90 minutes on the pitch <laughs> but the whole thing about the day itself is is the spectacle and it's the event and it, it's seeing people it's the banter, it's the crack it's it's the whole thing about being there and um, so, with that, uh, we'll move on to, I think it's going to be my favourite section of this podcast today. And it's going to be our best and worst moments um, following NUSA. So, I've broken this down into best goals, best players, the best moments. And that's obviously corresponding with the worst side of those as well. Okay. So, we'll start with uh, your best goals.
3: Uh, best goals, blimey. Me. I mean, there are the obvious ones, aren't there? Philippe Albert's chip. Shearer's goal against Everton um and others like against Chelsea and Aston Villa that were um that were fantastic as well but um I just try to pick out a couple that maybe wouldn't be so obvious um and Les Ferdinand's first goal for the club is one that one that I love um when he's played through at the end against Coventry and the keeper comes racing out and he knocks it past him and um when I, when you first saw, see the shot, you just wonder, is it actually going to go in? Because it's um, quite near to the post, isn't it? But not just that for the guard to make it 3-0 and and, and signalled a great start to the season and and made us think, well, you know, something's going to happen here this season. And it very nearly did. But um, the sun was shining, new kit, the, the greatest season set of kits that we will probably ever have. Um, new players in the team um, it just felt really good and to have it rounded off with your new strikers scoring um, that was great so I love watching that one um, It
2: was um, it was the first of um, Sir Les's 25 league goals that season um, he was only bettered by Robbie Fowler with 28 and of course Alan Shearer on 31 um, and also that season um, he was voted the, the PFA players player of the year
3: Fully deserved. I mean, what a what a Newcastle hero he is. And um, when we hear people outside the club say that northeast people or Newcastle fans have issues with anyone from London, just go and look at Les Ferdinand, look at Rob Lee, look at Glenn Roder as a player and then um, manager, caretaker initially. And there are others. Um, you know, he's just... He's, he's one of the greatest we've had in the modern era. Um, and I couldn't believe he was sold. It was heartbreaking and it um, was a terrible decision. Um, it really cost us because that following season was, even though we got to a cup final and, and beat Barcelona, that was an awful season, 97-98. But um probably come on to that. But other goals, uh, uh, Faustino Espria, uh, when he scored against Mets at home, um when he goes past a couple of players and dinks it over the keeper he didn't actually score that many for us um i think most of his goals came in europe didn't they um or, or probably um you know a, a large portion of them um but he you know in that game he lifted the corner flag up didn't he and um he just had yes a lot of style and um yeah i know, I know a lot of people attribute the problems towards the end of the previous season to him, um, whether you think that or not, he gave us some great moments, and, and that was one of them. Of course, Barcelona is, is, is obvious, but that's one that I, I enjoy. Um, yeah, he was, um, well, he's quite rightly still adored. Um, a little bit later on, um, Alan Shearer in the Champions League, and he missed that first Champions League campaign because he was injured. Um, and I, I watched recently on Twitter someone shared the, the pre match, and I think possibly the half time and full time from. Barcelona, and he was in the studio on ITV, um, and it was um, yeah, it was great to watch him do that. But of course, he he wasn't playing, um, but he did play when we got back in the Champions League, and um, he got a hat trick in one game. But he scored twice at Inter Milan, uh, and at that point, we were in with a shout still in the second group stage, and we went one nil and two one up, and and the second one in front of um, the Geordies in Milan. Ah, it was just amazing, Um and you know, I don't know if we've ever been at a higher point than that. Perhaps in our in our recent history, maybe in our lifetimes. You know, leading into Milan in the second group stage of the Champions League, Shearer scoring twice, fantastic.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's funny you mentioned. You know, he did score a hat trick earlier in that uh, Champions League campaign. It was was my first game actually at, at home to <laughs> buy Leverkusen. Um a game that sticks in your mind, you know it's the first time you've ever been to the ground and then your your best player scores a hat-trick and you think it's it's all all the all the planets have aligned for that brief moment, and you know you you've got your first game and oh God that your favorite players scored three goals and the 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 whole aura of the moment um just a couple of other things to point out from that season is um we got to that second group phase by a pure miracle <laughs> um with the first team to qualify from the first group stage as it was then by losing the first three games. Um, That's only been... Um, matched recently, I believe, and I know Man City have done it as themselves. I think very recently, um, and it was an eventful, to say the least. Um, second ever visit into the Champions League. Um, you know, we had the the suspensions of Bellamy and Shearer from. I believe yeah. it was the first game that we played against Inter Milan at St James's Park. I think Bellamy was sent off after only a few minutes, um, and of course we had when we played Barcelona again, we had the twenty-four hour rain delay.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
2: there's a there's a very famous picture out there um with Bobby and the umbrella um while he stood there in the middle of a downpour and I don't think many of the, the fans could uh, stay for the, 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 the game that was rearranged for the next night. Um and it was still a bit of a monsoon from what I remember rightly the following night as well.
3: Yeah, well, we, we took the lead, didn't we? Um, through Schola and yeah, And a, a great finish. Um, you know, and and that, it's those times, I, we, we probably got used to being in Europe. I don't think we ever took it for granted. And, and fans who would have been perhaps our age back then would have known some really dark times, relatively speaking, you know, some bad times in the 80s, problems, best plays being sold relegations. So for them to experience that would have been so special as it was for us, having grown up um, in a period when we were good and we got into Europe. Um, it's obviously a bit different now for any young supporters, which which is hard and they probably won't know much different to finishing in the bottom half or or fighting relegation. Um, in recent years, we have had some good moments though haven't we? Um, moments rather than perhaps sustained success or progress. Um, although what we did under Rafa Benitez was progress. Um, but of course, it wasn't the sort of progress that he wanted or, the, or that we were all hoping for. But um, such a huge amount of appreciation for what he did actually do. And, and one of the high points under Rafa, I think, in terms of goals was when we came back to beat Manchester City because Almiron's yes. Almeron's signing was getting done that night and that that broke before the game and we conceded early um but then got back in it and then Matt Ritchie with a penalty um and I know um I know Ritchie's last effort was was saved but he was so reliable uh, from the spot for us um and I just knew he was going to score and uh, what a roar from the crowd, a roar that we've missed hearing when uh, when he scored that. And then actually under Steve Bruce, there have been a couple as well, haven't there? I mean, Lejeune at Everton. Um, yeah. Uh, trying to work out what was going on there was uh, was tricky, <laughs> but um, it was unbelievable. It was one of the worst games I've ever seen, um, but credit to them. They, they got back um, and the players have done that a lot. They've got back, fought back many times. Um, but Matty Longstaff scoring his Premier League debut against Manchester United, what it meant for him, but also for the team, first win of the season, and for Steve Bruce was huge. Uh, and to score the winner at the Gallagher End of St James's Park is well, something really special. So great moments.
2: Yes, um, you know it was it was um, a goal that meant he was the youngest Newcastle United player to mark his Premier League debut with a goal. Um, he was the eighth player overall to do so at that time and since then we've had another three. So I'm gonna haul you a bit of trivia at you now. Okay. Um and so we've got Matty Longstaff is a named Premier League deputant goal scorer. There's ten other players. How many do you think you can name
3: uh well I'll do the recent ones which would be Joe Willock, uh Callum Wilson and Jeff Hendrick this season. Fraser scored on his debut but that was in the cup against Blackburn mm-hmm. um in September. So other players uh, scoring on then their their Premier League debut for Newcastle. Obviously Les Ferdinand uh, yep. would be one. Um oh now this is this is where it gets a bit trickier and it gets a bit tougher, <laughs> doesn't it? Um because we haven't always um you so see we haven't always started seasons well. So mm-hmm. you might be looking at players that it came in after the season began or, or maybe in January and I'm just trying to buy myself a bit of time here by, um, uh, by thinking uh, did Loic Remy do it um, no
2: he's not on the list he's
3: not on the list I've got various lists and various quiz questions uh, about goal scorers <laughs> and things but I've, I've not had this one there'd be some obvious ones people will be screaming mm. um,
2: well if you start to get a bit of a struggle Alex I'll, I'll give you some years Alex, yes Matthews. spot on yeah. I Spot remember on. that one. That's early.
3: Nineteen mm-hmm. Um
2: There's uh, there's two work. of them from the the nineteen ninety eight ninety nine season.
3: Deep Mahaman. No. Ninety
2: eight
3: ninety nine. Um Paul Dalglish? No. No. You see the pressure's on now. Um, <laughs> They're both in. strikers. Oh well. Um, that season, oh, Givash, of course. How can yep. we forget? Um, <laughs> and who went oh, Duncan Ferguson against Wimbledon. Yeah, spot on. I phoned Steve Howie about that because Steve is one of our pundits, and mm-hmm. uh, I think he played a big part in one of the goals, bringing the ball out from the back. And I remember watching it with him, <laughs> um, in the office, and, and he was he was telling us, yeah, what he uh, what a big part he played in that goal. Um, <laughs> you might have to give me the seasons for the other. For the others. Yeah,
2: no problem. So you have to fast forward 10 years for the next one. 2008-9. Disco. Yeah, spot on. And then uh, the next one would be 2012. But I believe that would be the 2011-12 season.
3: Ah, well, he came off the bench, didn't he? He scored against Villa. He did. Yeah,
2: Yeah, spot on. And the last one would be the 2015-16 season.
3: Uh, Wijnaldum.
2: Yes, spot on it's again. Fantastic.
3: I uh, see. I need, needed, needed to be pushed in the right direction. Um, <laughs> um, yeah,
2: definitely early doors. Um, so, so we'll awesome. go on to um, I've got a list that you supplied to me beforehand. So yeah. we'll run down the list of your best slash favorite players.
3: Yeah. Um. Well, obviously, all of the entertainers team from from the mid nineties. Um, and and they are rightly still loved and, and hugely respected um, and I hope when things are normal and, and if and when things change at the club that everyone associated will be back and, and can come back um, because that would be be really special to to celebrate that time again with the key people um, there as well. Um, I loved Lauren Robert when he came in because he and Craig Bellamy was also on my list helped transform us um, into the top four team that we were with their pace and their goal scoring and everything else they did and, and for the players around them. Um, and, you know, they both ended up leaving after Graham Souness came in. And it, once again, a, a wonderful team was being dismantled and, and that was horrible. Uh, Jonathan Woodgate was was sensational. Um, and And as a defender, I mean, have we had any or many better than him, even though he didn't play that many times for us because of injuries. I mean, what a difference he made. I just wish we'd had him for a bit longer. Um, and, and actually, those are obviously some some big-name players and, and, and everyone loves yeah. Kabai and, and Ben Arthur, but I often... often I want to see the players who don't get as much love do well. And um, players might be unsung heroes who who, oh, who might get criticised by fans a lot. And and for that reason, I you know, always... I always really liked Mike Williamson when he did well. I mm-hmm. um, was always really pleased. You know, he was someone whose career began at the lower levels of the football league and yet he became a regular in the Premier League for Newcastle and played in Europe in a quarter quarterfinal. Um, and, and he he did so well. And I always thought he was unfairly targeted. I'm not, not saying that um, he was the best player in the team, but I thought a lot of the criticism on him was unfair because yeah, I thought he was an easy target. Um but fans who went to the games are of course able to assess with their own eyes what they see. Yeah. But um I thought he did did really well for us and again considering how little he cost, um he's Gateshead manager now and um he's fantastic, really fantastic man um and, and doing great things for them. Um so I always liked him and of the current players, um, you know having spoken regularly to most of them over the years in interview situations they're all great lads they're all really nice they all care they all have the right attitude which hasn't always been the case with squads in in you know maybe the last 10 years or so frustratingly um, so i've got nothing bad to say about any of them but but i'm i'm a big supporter of paul dummett because again like williamson he would often be the first one to get criticised uh, and working with Rafa Benitez, I think, really helped him. He's improved so much uh, and become a, a quality defender. Always had it in him, of course. Um, and and I, I always feel better about us defensively when he's in the team. Really nice lad as well. Um, and, and I always want him to do well. And the same with Kieran Clark, who's one of the nicest footballers that you'll speak to, always does interviews, always you can just tell he's just a genuinely nice fella. And I think he's been terrific for us. Um, other defenders might get most of the credit, but recently Steve Bruce has said that Clark, for some, might be an unsung hero, but not for him. And this season, I think he's been great when he's played. He keeps it simple, but he does it He does it effectively. Um, he's just a good defender. So, um, you know, we all love Wilson. We all love watching San Maximo. We love Almiron for what he gives us. But, but some of those other players there, um, you know, I think, I think, deserve a mention so that's why I picked perhaps a couple of unusual ones but but it's yeah. by no means limited to them so there are others as mm-hmm. well but but those are just some I picked out
2: yeah and uh, suppose when you look at it on the whole that's quite a comprehensive list of of players especially when you have to group the entertainers together as one and yeah. by all means yeah. that's that's the way I would probably do it myself to be fair and um, but if I was to ask you to pick one out of that selection to be yeah ultimate favourite who would it be
3: See, I haven't even mentioned Solano or Speed <laughs> because it kind of goes without saying. Um, and, yeah. And yeah. Um, Bliny. Um, what are the entertainers? Probably Ferdinand uh, from 95, 96, others. Uh, and and I'm leaving aside Shearer because it's the obvious choice. Um, mm-hmm. The greatest goal scorer we've ever had. Um, I'd pick Laurent Robert. Great. Right. Brilliant.
2: I mean, you know, there's there's something about Lauren Rebeay that, you know, he captures a lot of fans' hearts and as somebody who when he hit a shot, it stayed hit. <laughs> and he, he certainly knew how to strike a ball, that's for sure. As some of the goals that he scored in his time. Um, you know, that you just have to look at that game against Tottenham where he scored the two absolute rakers um as one example. And there's there's goals across his career at the club where you just think my god, he's absolutely leathered it. Um so would it, we'll move it would be on. Your from, pick.
3: It would be your pick from that.
2: That's well, awesome. I've I've always had a soft spot for Nobby Solano to be fair. Mm. As the, the, the man who uh, supplied Alan Shearer with best part of his goals. Um I would probably pick Nobby to be fair, yeah. Mm. Definitely. Good um job. so we'll go on from uh, the best players there, and we've now got to go into best moments. Now we've sort of covered them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked, certainly the first one you you, you uh, gave to me was uh, the Champions League qualifications. Um, so we'll start with that. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask was it the actual campaigns themselves or the seasons that preceded them that led to the qualification?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, probably all of them. I mean, we were a club that was really competing in the mid-90s and to get in on the final day of 96-97 by beating Forest 5-0, because we did it on goal difference and we had the best goal difference in the league that season, incredibly. I looked at the table um, recently and, uh, and it remarkable and we pipped Arsenal and Liverpool, so that in itself was great. I think a couple of other things happened in the Premier League at the other end that day um, uh, <laughs> with regards to relegation, which. I, you know, only found out about later because it was following Newcastle's match. But I guess for a lot of fans, that was that was a really good day. But you know, to then obviously get through the qualifier in Zagreb um, was was special because that was dramatic as well. Um, yes, there were pro- there were problems in in that game, but but they did it um, and it was great. And obviously to get in by finishing fourth and then go through the qualifier in two thousand and two, um, and you know we finished third. 2002, three, but then Partizan Belgrade, and if there is a point when things started to unravel, it, for me it's that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we we missed out um, on the Champions League, and and then missed out on the top four the following season. Um, but but just to achieve it, it was really meaningful. Um, in recent times, though, I, you know the, the the present team, the present era that Manchester City win that I've already mentioned in, in yeah. January twenty nineteen. Um obviously winning the championship
1: Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com slash podcast and use code qvc15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life
3: under Rafa in the way that we did it was was quite incredible. Um, we had a reporter at Villa Park that day, um, giving us updates, and where we where we would sit at the ground um, in the Melbourne stand. We've got supporters just to our right. I mean, so close we can talk to them. Um, and uh, and I was trying to give signals to them um, when when Brighton scored at Villa, and then we were three 0 up, I think and I got a message in my ear from the studio in in our headset in the um in my ear because we we're always in communication with the studio um saying there's been a goal at Villa Park. So I looked at Ando who was at my left and just raised my eyebrows and right okay 2-0 we're not going to win the league. And our reporter Chris <laughs> uh, Chris Sykes who now works behind the scenes at Radio 5 Live um he he shouted yes it's a goal for Aston Villa. I uh, we couldn't believe it. Um I think it put my hands on my head and Open mouth, and I started to um, signal to supporters one one, two, um, you know, fingers in the air, and try and tell those near to us, and and I mean the bloke who, who sits closest. I don't actually know his name. Really nice fella. <laughs> um, well, we always speak as do all the fans nearby. Um, shaking his head, didn't believe it. Trying to turn around to tell the fans in the the front of the directors box that it was one one. And, like few people, I don't think they knew what was going on, but people were obviously on their phones um, anyway. And then around the ground, we heard that big roar, didn't we? Shortly afterwards, because word got around. Obviously, not started by us because people can find it out themselves. But um, that was great. And then, and then we got the final whistle. You see the celebrations of the players uh, on the pitch. It was, it was, that uh, was terrific. Um, and, and Rafa Benitez, final game in charge, Fulham away. You know the fans on the on the river cruise, uh, down the Thames to get there. Boiling hot day, 1-4-0. They were terrific. Could have had a few more. The The supporters that day were as good as I've, I've seen them. Felt really positive about the future. And then obviously things didn't quite go the way we thought. Um, under Steve Bruce, the Everton draw to come back after what mm-hmm. we've already said was an awful game, beating Manchester United at home. Um, and actually, the start of this season, winning at West Ham. I mean, it's not quite up there with the others, but to win on the opening day is quite rare for us. We yeah. were good, but but look at what's happened since. Look at West Ham; you would never have thought they would do so well, um, and and that we, we would be in the position that we are now. Sadly, after that opening day of the season.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and just to, to revisit a couple of those, um, the the, the Flum game that you mentioned there, the four nil win. Um, I was there myself in in the away end, and I wasn't part of the black and white armada that sailed down the Thames. But <laughs> we 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 got um, to the park next to to the ground at Craven Cottage, and we saw the the boats docking on the other side of the river, um, outside of the pubs that we're all going into. And to this day, I still don't, I still can't comprehend the sight of seeing one of those Thames cruisers bobbling in the water. Um, in in reaction to the fans just going crackers on board and having a disco and a party and that, and to see the board just sitting there bobbling along, I mean, I'm quite glad I wasn't on there because I'm pretty sure I would have been a bit seasick <laughs> as <laughs> a result. Um, and the, the the game at Everton, um, I would implore anybody that's listening that if you can, to find the highlights of those games from the club on YouTube, because it includes uh, Razor's commentary in that. And to be honest, I know you don't like to listen back to your commentary. Um, but if anything describes a situation quite as manic as that situation was, then it's you and Ando do it um, completely in to a T. It's well, thank it's a perfect mixture of commentary and reaction to a scene that, when I was watching it, I couldn't quite believe what was going on myself either. Um, and it's also it quite nice to see it was, and it's also quite nice to see Jordan Pickford lose his head, which he tends <laughs> to do against us. Um It wouldn't have been the first time, and I don't well, think it'll be the last either.
3: Well, Ando, Ando enjoyed that in particular. Just quickly on that, it, it was pretty chaotic. Um You know, we have to listen back to what we do anyway, but it's um, and we'll come on to this probably at the end. You know, if, if you work in the media or in in any kind of broadcasting, even you know if you do a ch- work on a channel like this and do a show like you're doing, um, you'll have to analyze and see your own work back. And it's not never easy. It never sounds or looks how you think. Um, but but that one, um, it was chaotic for many reasons because no one knew who'd scored. The ball was was like pinball in the box. But also at goodison park it's one of the most awkward commentary positions um because you've got um, pillars in the way of the pitch um it's the tightest area for, for sitting you've got no leg room at all and um, you've got home fans right pressed up behind you against you the, the, the rows are so tight it's a great ground to go to because it's old-fashioned um, and the atmosphere is good but also in terms of replays there are only a couple of screens so as soon as the goal was given, everyone in front of us in the media section got up and they were peering over and looking at the screen. We couldn't see it because there's only, I think there's only three and in the section that we were at, they're at either end. So you just, you've got no chance. A lot of grounds were lucky. You have them on your desk. You've got your own replay screen, yeah. but there, we, we didn't know. We we couldn't see and, and no one really knew, but people were looking at replays, but they were looking at replays for their um you know, for their coverage or whatever they were writing or broadcasting meant that we couldn't see it. They blocked off the T V, so that was harder, but yeah, an incredible comeback, wasn't it?
2: It is. And and it's funny that you just mentioned there about um Goodison Park and its current reposition. I'll I'll end this little section in your favourite ground to, to commentate at, which has been the best ground that you've commentated at so far.
3: Yeah, well obviously St James is is, is special um and the noise from the crowd can make it so, but we've got a good position because we're, we're close enough to the pitch, but a bit higher up so that we can see a bit more of what's going on. Um, it's it's interesting this. I mean, Wembley's great, but you, you, you're you slightly to the right of the halfway line. I always prefer to be about halfway up over the mm-hmm. halfway line. Um, if you're closer to one end than the other, if all the actions in that, in that penalty box or when Newcastle attack that goal, um, mm-hmm. it's it's great but it's when it's down the other end it's a bit harder to see um, I like Leicester because you've got as I say, like that sort of perfect position unobstructed um, near the halfway line, good height Watford is the same, you're at the back of the stand but it's not a big stand um, and, and that's pretty good um, Liverpool I went to Anfield once before it was redeveloped in the main stand and now you're right at the top and it's like being at level seven at St James. O-T-M-E. And so it's too high because you don't really feel part of it. You, you kind of miss out on the noise of the cop in the away end. But you've got, you can, you've got an overview. You can see tactically a lot. So that's often interesting in a different way to, to view it. Um, but yeah, I think probably in the Premier League, I, I, I like Leicester because of the height that you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're sort of in the middle, and it's a it's a really good view of the pitch, which is which is really all you want. But most of the grounds are are pretty good now for uh, mm-hmm. for that. I, I, I like going to all away games, really. Um, and if you're at a smaller ground, it, it's tighter, and you're often closer to the pitch and closer to the action. And you will be as a fan, I guess, a travelling fan. So yeah, um, it's just you take something different from every ground.
2: Yeah. So we'll 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 stay on that theme and we'll start to talk about and I hate to do this because you know there's so much goes on at the club at the minute and the next bit of the podcast is probably going to be a little bit depressing for a few people <laughs> um we're gonna talk about some of your worst moments that you've seen at the club, but we'll start with what we've just been talking about and we'll go with the worst ground that you've been at for commentary. Ooh. The
3: worst experience I've of- I've had it grounds has been related to the, to our kit, not working our broadcast kit. Right. Um, so it's not always the ground itself, um, but we've, we've been helped out sometimes by either radio five live or in one case, um, radio Sussex, who lent us a spare kit at Brighton, uh, once when we had problems. So that often that fills you with dread when you go back to those places. Um, but, but worst ground, um, I've been thinking about this and it's it's difficult. It's often, I think the most uncomfortable one to commentate from is Everton. West Ham, the London Stadium, is, is a weird position, but you've got a clear view of the pitch. The worst experience I've had at, a, at an away ground was actually um, at Grimsby uh, while doing Gateshead in the conference playoff Great. semi-final um, because there was a home fan behind us, um, you, you were boxed off just behind the benches, um, so quite low down, old-fashioned stand, pillars in the way of, of, of the pitch, keeping the roof up, keeping the stand up. Um, but there was an, a home fan behind us who was getting really upset. Now, it was 1-1 in the home leg, Gates had won the, the second leg uh, to get to Wembley. Um, and, and there was a bit of a rivalry with Grimsby because of that for a couple of years. Um, was a home fan who just didn't like what what he was seeing, and he was shouting and screaming. But he was shouting at the media, um, and he was shouting <laughs> at us. And me and my colleague Paul Dixon, who's a, a big name in Northeast Non-League football, and one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, he's brilliant, Dicker. Um, you know, we we were there to describe it from Gateshead's perspective, as we would be um, describing any game from Newcastle's perspective, but still trying to be fair um, and 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 as. Um, you know, down the middle as we can be, but what happens in the game for the team that we're covering is what's important to our audience. He didn't seem to understand that. Um, even though Radio <laughs> Humberside was sitting just along from us, um, he decided to, to listen to what we were saying and he was shouting and screaming at us and shouting, you're biased yeah, all the time. I was coming through loud and clear on the microphones and there were no stewards around the media area, which you'd get in the Premier League. Um, mm-hmm. and, and right at the end of the game, he... he, he jumped over the fence pretty much the the wall into where we were and, and grabbed our crowded um, effects microphone and screamed something like Grimsby town down it and then threw it down and walked off um, I mean it wasn't particularly threatening or intimidating it was more annoying to be honest I mean this was someone who was probably in his 50s but he was getting really upset mm-hmm. by what was going on Um I, I can understand it. Is you know, they there's always a bit of needle at that at that ground. I don't think the fans and the club get on particularly well. But that that that's the worst experience I think I've had um, <laughs> at, at a game. Um, but you know, within a second after screaming into our microphone, he was gone. Um, shouldn't have been allowed to do it. But mm-hmm. um, normally in, in in the Premier League, you're. Um, and the championship or whatever you sectioned off and and you're okay and fans can't do that. I've got no problem with him with him shouting that we're biased or disagreeing with what we're saying but yeah that um that overstepped him mark a little <laughs> bit I think.
2: Ah uh, the 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 things you get up to at non league grounds eh. Um yeah. I will tell you what there's one moment I remember from fairly recently was um you were covering a game down at Turf Moor and I think you had issues with the tech then and you definitely ended up doing something on the telephone didn't you?
3: Well, you're right, yeah, um, and, and that's that's what I mean. You've got broadcast kit, um, and we use an ISDN line, which is um, high-speed line, high-quality line, um, you know, crystal-clear quality on, a, on a, what, a second delay, perhaps, from the action. Um, but, yeah, our kit just stopped working at, at, at Turf Moor, and it was just after the second half began. It was uh, December 2019, And um, we couldn't get it to work. So we had to do the second half on the phone um, with no link to the studio, nothing in our ears. Um, You know, in terms of communication, tried to get the line back up. We couldn't. We missed the goal that Burnley scored. I didn't even see it. I just heard the, the roar of the crowd. Um, I was that was awful because you're trying to get your kit to work so you can broadcast in quality, but you're also trying to have a backup method ready quickly. Um, yeah, it was a it, that was a nightmare. I had the same problem in Porto in preseason three years ago. Problems with the kit had to do the game because we did that one on the radio on the phone. Although it didn't sound too bad there, but I think Burnley was it wasn't it wasn't great sound quality. That's always you're always worried. It wasn't our kids, it was the line at Burnley and they'd had problems a few weeks before uh, that we'd subsequently found out uh, at full time. But uh, yeah, you hope that 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 doesn't get repeated ever. Um, But it has happened (laughs) on occasion, sadly, and that's just just the way it is.
2: Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, it's not, but it is. Uh, So we'll go into um, your worst... I've I've grouped these together. Um, Mm -hmm. So we'll go with your worst goals and worst moments.
3: OK, um, yeah, well, because this is all negative, I'll try and keep it, um, keep it brief. I mean, the obvious <laughs> one from the mid-90s is losing at home to Man United when we battered them and Cantona scored. Mm-hmm. Um, Ando said to me the other day, John Anderson, um, our match summariser and former player, that Ben Teke's goal for Crystal Palace at Brighton reminded him of Cantona's against Newcastle. You know, the, the sort of swinging cross from the left side, got a, got a yard on the defender and volleyed it back over. And I kind of see where he's coming from. Um.
1: Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life.
3: But yeah, gosh, that was, I've never, you know, how old was I then? Uh, seven or eight, and it just, mm-hmm. oh, it felt like the world had ended after that result. Um, <laughs> A lot of was,
2: people say that we played better in that game than we did in the 5-0. Yeah,
3: we, we, oh, well, it just summed up the season, didn't it? We were great, and we were so close, but it, it wasn't enough. Um, the relegations obviously were, well, hard. The first one, I was at university on the Sunday. I wasn't actually working for the um, BBC that day because I had I had to go through the university and I had a lot of work on, um, so I'd, I'd had that day off in in advance. And yeah, I was um, I was with some Sunderland supporters that day, which just made it worse to, in yeah. 2009 because uh, they, they stayed up. Um, 2016, we went down because of Sunderland beating. Everton wasn't it? Um, yeah, a game that I didn't watch. I, I saw the score, and you know, I just well, we kind of knew it was coming. Um, losing the FA Cup finals as well, it, it, it's, it's quite raw, isn't it? You'll know this. I mean, getting there is great, mm-hmm.
2: but
3: yeah, um, uh, just Wembley generally hasn't been good to us, has it? Um, yeah, all. I mean, you've got you've got
2: the the they're both two nil defeats to just turns out that we also played those teams that were winning the league that season as well. So it was Arsenal in ninety eight and Man United in ninety nine who also then went on to do a treble. Um and <laughs> I've got a little note here um to further compound the, the Wembley heartache as you as you alluded to there. Um we've got the semi-final in the following season. Um oh, no. which we we lost we lost against Chelsea. Um but I suppose at least we managed to score in that one.
3: Well it was a great goal as well and and for Rob Lee, after what happened to him at the start of that season, it, it was magnificent. I mean, the noise was just amazing. Um, and didn't their first goal come from, or was it the second? Not be the first goal. Poyet when it, there was a free mm-hmm. kick and the ball was rolling, um, and and yeah, Poyet was a bit naughty in that game. It's been Steve Howie who played in it. Um, yeah, Poyet was was did some naughty things in that match. And yeah. I think when they scored their winner, Aaron was it? Aaron Hughes was down was in been right. in, maybe was old, old dire, might have been Hughes or Dyer. Might have been Dyer. was hurt and, and was down and we obviously we were a man light. Um, and they scored out oh, just heartbreaking. We didn't deserve to lose. So yeah, <laughs> Wembley generally and even playing Spurs there <laughs> in the Premier League. We couldn't manage yeah. a goal even though we came incredibly close um, on on several occasions. Um losing the away for Cup semi final to Marseille after yeah. the 0-0 draw at home, yeah, we just didn't quite have enough. And it was it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was upsetting. And then when we drew with Southampton in 2004, we missed out on Champions League qualification. And we were we were good for the win in that game. We were in front twice, I think. Um, yeah. And then they were 3-2 up and it was Darren Ambrose that scored. And and the significance of his goal kind of didn't dawn on me at the time. Like we got it back to 3-3 three, three and it was like, well... Yeah, but we're not going to get in the Champions League. But that yeah. that enabled us to get into the UEFA Cup, didn't it?
2: Um it did. And there uh, by by pure coincidence, it's just that um it was we finished level after the next game because we drew at Liverpool, um, and we finished level on points with Aston Villa who yeah. with fifty six, but our goal difference was plus twelve to their plus four.
3: Yeah. I mean that, so, that, so it was that... the goal difference that got it. That was massive. I mean, you know, getting the point at Anfield on the final day was, was unlikely, but we needed it. Um, and, and, you know, look look what happened at Liverpool that summer. They picked us to the Champions League, Rafa Benitez came in and the rest is history. <laughs> now, you yeah. know, had that been us in there, things, football, life could and would have been very different. But um, that's that's... That's how things can turn. Things can change. I
2: mean, I mean that game itself. Um, you know that was the 12th of May, and the the loss to Marseille was the 6th of May. Um, so it was uh it was the season crumbling a bits as a result. But uh, just to quickly go back to that Marseille game, you know, the 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 game over in France, it was Didier Drogba who who stole the show. He then moved to Chelsea and became you know you know know what Drogba did at Chelsea, and it was almost as if that game was cemented his move into the Premier League.
3: Yeah, well, what a replacement he would have been for Shearer, um, if we could have mm. got him. He hadn't done so well against us. Um, <laughs> obviously, thankfully, Shearer played on for another another two seasons um, and broke the record. But, but you're right. I mean, that really um, he really announced himself there, our tormentor in chief, Didier Dropper. <laughs> Um And you know, in 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 Europe as well. I mean, the following year, again. Sometimes with us, doesn't it? It feels like if things are going to go wrong, they're going to go very badly wrong and very quickly. And one yeah. terrible result is compounded by another, and then the following season, Sporting Lisbon away, we were one we were two up on aggregate because Dyer scored. Mm-hmm. Then we lost the second leg four-one, and we, we picked up injuries, didn't we? Um, and then, then, a few days later, the semi-final in Cardiff, and and uh, I don't even want to talk about that one because it was just horrible. <laughs> um, Benfica. Um, yes. I, I, I listened to a, and not to advertise other other forms of media, but I listened to a podcast with Andy Woodman, um, the former mm-hmm. goalkeeping coach, and he talked about the recently, and he talked about the Benfica home leg in 2013, um, and how the the players got a standing ovation at the end, drew one one at home, got knocked out four two on aggregate, said he couldn't believe it, and he still thinks about it. Um, I thought we were going to go through when we went one 0 up in the away leg, and then in the second yeah. leg, you know, we, we were we need just needed another goal, and I really thought we were going to do it, and that was oh, so deflating when we lost that, and and we've not been, we've not been back in Europe since, um, and recently look, there've been there was some tough results under Rafa as well, and some some bad runs, you know, even with someone as great as him and his staff in charge. Um, but but more recently, I mean, losing to Sheffield United was one of those horrible nights that you just had a sense after a couple of minutes, this isn't gonna something's not right here. This isn't gonna go well. Yeah. And then when Fraser got sent off, the VAR penalty—I don't think it was a penalty—but but they got it. We got one there last season, didn't we? The Shelby goal. Yeah. Um, oh, it was just for me that was worse than Brentford because it was it was really alarming. Um, but. At least we have picked up a couple of results since then.
2: Yeah, there was there was a lot of people going into that game that sort of called it beforehand that we weren't going to win. And I I remember tweeting after the game against Leicester um, that you just you know Sheffield United haven't won a game yet this season. Guess who their first victory is going to be against? (laughs) And it's it's such as the way things are at the minute. There's an inevitability about things at at Mm. this club. Um, And if it's if you don't think it's going to get worse, it does. Um to go back to the, the game you mentioned with Benfica there, um again that result hinged on what was essentially a second half collapse out in, in Benfica itself. Yeah. Um and in the home leg that you mentioned, you know, we only needed that one more goal, but before he scored his goal in that second leg, CC had two disallowed. Yeah. I think they were yeah. correctly disallowed, but he had two chances before that to to open the scoring. Um and just to compound that, as we mentioned before, we had the, the game with Sport in Lisbon that was followed by the semi-final against Man United. Um, the next home game after that game against Benfica was a derby yeah. that we lost 3-0. Now, I think that might well be the De Cano-Nisle game. Um, yeah, it was. And then, yeah. Yeah. and then the next home game after that, and mm. I only remember this because I was there and I stayed till the very end to put myself through some sort of torture. I don't know why. Um it was a 6-0 loss to Liverpool. I think Storage had a whale of a time that day. Um they all did. so yeah. you know yeah um it's we we often do the hard things the hardest way possible. Um and if it's like I say if it's going to go wrong it's it's going to go disastrously wrong. Um so we'll finish this section um we I did ask we, we did sort of cover it beforehand mm-hmm. but we didn't really get any decision from you is your worst players <laughs> I'll I'll let you name just one if you don't want to go too far.
3: Yeah, well I mean I look it's certainly none of the current bunch, um, you know, and and for obvious reasons. Um I mean not, not just professionally because you, you have to deal with them, but but I think when you know you, you, you respect them a bit more and you get to understand um, you know, that it's a great life, but it's not always easy being a, a professional footballer because of expectation and, and injury and everything else and you actually see that you know these are these are nice lads, they're good people. Um, I, I do like them. I do like the current squad and the, the current team. I mean, I, I wouldn't say worst player. There's certainly no one that I that I despise or dislike. I mean, mm-hmm. with managers, I was really delighted when Dalglish got the job. But I, I know there was obviously things behind the scenes with the PLC, and, and a lot of players ended up being sold, which was heartbreaking. But the ones that came in were nowhere near as good, and you could you could take seeing some of your best players go if the replacements that come in are, are good and, and you look at our team 96-97 to 97-98, and I know Shira was injured but and, and Aspria and then left halfway through but like some of the players that came in were just yeah you know, were just not good enough and you go from second and second to thirteenth and actually in a relegation mm-hmm. battle at one point. That's not that's not right. Um, so yeah. that was disappointing. Yet Dalglish got us to a cup final and, and into the Champions League and signed Shea Given, Nikos Davizas, Gary Speed, Dietmar Haman, Nobby mm-hmm. Solano, players that formed the basis of Sir Bobby's great team. Um, but, but you know, we we lacked a goal scorer and, and there were problems there. So you, you think play, about players that came in that were disappointing, like Ian Rush, who'd been an unbelievable footballer, but it was just too late for him here. He was too, you know, he was too old, tried his best of course, but, but, you know, he he wasn't, um, wasn't, you know, the player that he was in the eighties and and early nineties because of age. Um, and then other players that came in that didn't work, you know, Des Hamilton, unfortunately got a lot of stick. Um, never hear from him now, do you? Don't know where (laughs) he is. He's 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 vanished. um, Dropped off the scene. Yeah. But, um, Silvio Maric, um players like that, Georgius Georgiades, just didn't work, and that, that's when it's disappointing. Um and in more recent times, you know, I was always a massive fan when we watched Man City of Steven Island.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: When we yeah. signed him, I was delighted, but he only, he only played twice, and, and I don't quite know what was wrong, but but that was disappointing because he he'd been a great player, he'd been really effective goal-scoring midfielder. So I think not necessarily worst players, but but there've been players that we've signed that it's it, it's been disappointing because it hasn't worked out yeah. the way that you want. And there's yeah. probably many others that I could give you um, over the years, but but those are just a few.
2: Yeah, that's great. Um, we'll we'll move on then, and we'll go into uh, we'll start to wind down a little bit, and we'll go into the current affairs of Newcastle United. So. You know, we're going to talk about a little bit about Steve Bruce and then the recent arrival of Graham Jones. Um, And we'll talk a little bit um, about um, team and player form. Um, Something I would like to talk to you about would be um, how that's changed over the last two to three years. So we'll start with uh, current affairs and Steve Bruce and and, and Graham Jones. What would you like? What can we talk about there?
3: Well, I I want to say about Steve Bruce um, getting a lot of criticism understandably so, because of the performances as well as the results. And it's not just for this season, it's it's also um, for the way things were last season as well. I know a lot of fans didn't want him. That was pretty clear. He knows that. I don't believe any supporter has ever wanted him to fail. And I always say I one of the reasons you want him to succeed is because if he's doing well, then the team is doing well whatever you think of the way that the club is run and structured and whatever doing well might, might represent or might be. Yeah. If, if he's succeeding, then that means that, that we are doing well. So of course you want, you want him to, to get results and you want us to play well. That hasn't really been happening much this season, unfortunately. Um, as a man, my experience of him, as I said earlier, he's, he's fantastic. Um, he's, he's very good to deal with. Um, yeah, he's, he's He's got quite a bit about him as a person and a personality. Um, in my experience, a lot of the players seem to like him and, and want to respond to him. Um, very different to Rafa Benitez, though, who had such presence as well, but in a different yeah. way. Um, and, you know, you, you, you all know about his record, don't you? We all know before he came here and the fact he was here was special. And he improved players individually. He improved the team. He improved our fortunes. He wanted to kick on, but but you know, by the end, I think the relationship with the club wasn't just wasn't there, was it? Sadly, and, yeah. and we're not as good as as we were at, may, at many things in that time. I think we've got players in the team now that probably Rafa Benitez wouldn't have wanted, um, and wouldn't wouldn't have you know perhaps felt fitted into the way he wanted us to play, but. How we have been playing recently has been better. Um, mm-hmm. Graeme Jones has come in. I'm sure that he's been part of that. But um, if you if you look at what Steve Bruce has been saying for a little while, he has wanted to change things and they have changed things. They brought in another coach and there's been an improvement in performances. But of course, we've got to get results now. And that's the main thing. Um, players are trying. But we've lost Wilson to injury and that's, that's a blow. I still think we're capable yeah. of, of finishing comfortably clear of relegation. But the next few games over March are, are going to be critical.
2: Yeah. And, and talking about player aggression, you know, having, having watched us since... Um, I I don't like to, to jump on this bandwagon all the time, but you end up having to. And th- there's no reason to make comparisons between what Rafa achieved and what Steve Bruce is achieving, but player regression and player form is evident. And a lot of those players in the squad just don't seem to be at the level that they were when, when Rafa was still here and before Rafa left, so to speak, um, you know, uh, the back, the back line, the, 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 defense itself is not as strong. It's not as solid. Um, it's shipping goals for fun in, in some respects. Um, it's, the, you know that those players that were once one of the, sol- the the most tight, solid units in the league mm-hmm. just seems to be all over the place at the minute. You've got a central midfield um, selection of, like a group of players in, for for central midfield who just something's not right in there. That seems to have been a problem for most of the season. Um, we've tried to we address that by bringing Joe Willick in on loan for the, the second half of this season, but that's been a problem. You've got to look at. Matty Longstaff being ostracised effectively from the squad. We see him in fits and starts. He brought him in for three very tough games over the Christmas period, and we haven't seen him since. Mm. We've got Sean Longstaff, who I would say hasn't been the same player since he got the injury at West Ham a few years ago. He's totally gone off the boil from that. He's he's come back from that. I don't know. I, think, I don't know if it's a, a confidence issue um, or something like that. Where. His form hasn't reached those heights again. And then we've had a situation this season where he's sort of been in and out of the squad and he hasn't... Again, he's suffering from a lack of form in that respect. And again, he's somebody that we haven't seen for a, since about Christmas time now as well. Uh, I think his last game was the Sheffield United game. Yeah. Um, and up front, I would probably say that the front line now is better than what Rafa had when he left... Um, you know Wilson's proven goal scorer. St. Maximin, I don't think would have been Rafa's type of player, like you alluded to. Mm-hmm. But he's exciting, and we we love an exciting player, don't we? Really. Yeah. Um, and you've got Almiron, who, you know, he, he 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 does all these stuff on the pitch. He's a grafter. He always puts in hundred percent, and he, he seems to have that bit of spark about him that we think can change a game. But overall, you've got to look at the, the 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 parts of the squad that were strong now appear to be really weak and fragile.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty damning assessment. Um, You find very few supporters disagreeing with you there. Um, Your eyes don't lie. And when we watch it, we can see how they're playing, what's going on, and we can compare it to to how things were for individuals and and for the team generally. And most of those comparisons this season are unfavourable, unfortunately. Um, there are some things that I think that, that we can do well. Often it's about individual quality, like with some Maximo, or Wilson scoring. Um, but actually, even under Rafa as well, a lot of it was about individual moments. Um, and and under Bruce and under Benitez, and quite a lot of that's been from goalkeeper, from Debravka and from Darlow. So yeah, I, we often find that we're easy to get at, but but as a team. You know, it would be nice to to feel like the unit is a bit stronger. The performances have been better recently, which suggests that maybe some things are are being sorted out uh, and improved, but it hasn't been easy to watch generally. Even when we were winning in the early part of the season, it wasn't always good. Um, You're just wanting a bit more, wanting them to play well, have a bit more control in midfield. Um, You know, other teams would move the ball quickly. we couldn't move it quickly. We didn't keep it when we had it. Look at the possession stats. Things like that have improved recently and I just hope that they continue to improve. But um, it hasn't been a fun season for so many reasons. But there have been some good players in the team, some good moments as well. Uh, we need a few big moments and big results now over the next couple of weeks to make sure that we're we're safe and that we're comfortable. Um, because the last thing that we want is to have to go to Fulham on the final day of the season needing something when they yeah, may absolutely able to need something,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so as you you you've just mentioned there, we'll move on and, and start to look towards the the future a little bit. Um, and we'll cover here, um, we'll, we'll start with Steve Bruce in the future. I think before we, we do this, I think it's important to mention that the dreaded T word in this in this situation <laughs> because I think the direction of the club is now a fork in the road. And the fork in the road goes down the the avenue of either takeover happens or takeover doesn't happen. Um, So it it sort of splits into two here. So we've got two sides to to work on. So we'll, we'll start with Steve Bruce and then we'll go, what happens if there is a takeover and what happens if there isn't a takeover?
3: Well, I mean, Steve Bruce has said a few times that he won't walk away from the challenge. And I firmly believe that. He is supported by the club, um, and they appointed him because they felt that he could do the job and that they could work with him. Um, he came in at a difficult time, and we were actually safe last season before the campaign was suspended in terms of the number of points. So, while the beginning of last season was a bit a bit worrying, um, we, and and I know that we're you know, performances weren't weren't always great. Um, it was it was a lot more comfortable than this year has been. Um, it, he will be as keen as anybody to make sure that that we are safe as soon as possible. He signed an initial three year contract. You um, just he, people people wonder would he would he lose his job? And you know, it's not really been the sort of thing that they've done, is it? Get rid of managers. Yeah in bad times. Now I know McLaren was replaced by Rafa, but that was in the middle of March. Chris Hought was, was um also manager until the December of, of the first season backup. But look at the problems Alan Pardew had uh, and with bad runs at times after after a, a, a great season. Uh, and and the tension between him and the fans and the fans and the club. And they stood by him and he left of his own accord in the end. So mm-hmm. I, I feel that they will continue to try to support Steve Bruce. Um, but but it, the future of the club is you know, the direction it is, whether there's a takeover or not, whether it's this one uh, or another one that may come about if this one doesn't go through. Um, you know, the one thing that, that has become clear in the last year or so is that Mike Ashley does really want to sell Newcastle. Um, and I know some people have doubted that before. And this time he's got wealthy, willing buyers. And for reasons, in fairness, that can't really be thrown at Mr. Ashley, it hasn't um, received approval. And obviously, um, arbitration proceedings have have begun. So um, we just have to wait and see. But like you, like everyone, I've just got severe takeover fatigue. I'm sick of talking about it. I'm sick of hearing about it kinda of just want to know one way or the other, um, give us the news that most fans want or, or put us out of our misery. Um, I've no doubt that the people who um are part of the consortium that have been trying to get it, um, whether that's Amanda Staveley and her side, the Ruben brothers and the family, um and the people involved with Saudi Arabia, I've no doubt that that they would um they would change things. And they seem yeah. to have a real plan for that to show the club some love that they would feel that it needs and also take us in a different direction. And I think, you know, sometimes it's better the devil you know, but I think we all look at, at the, the proposed takeover and, and see that it many of the things that we, we want for the club are contained within that. Whatever you might feel about some of the criticisms of Saudi Arabia. Um, whether that's to do with television rights and um, alleged piracy or um, human rights in terms of what it could mean for the football club it is what most supporters want Um, and a lot of the people seem really good people that that could do the right thing so we have to wait and see on that Um, but you just got to, in some ways, try to forget about it as much as you can, because at the minute, preserving Premier League status is more important than than thinking about that and thinking about the future. But um, at some point, there will have to be an outcome, a decision, a final decision on that. Um, quite when that'll be, who knows?
2: That's exactly it, and uh, you're at, you're spot on there. We have to focus on the here and now, and whether we like it or not the hearing now is staying in this league um mm-hmm. you know we all know that relegations a real threat um i think a majority of the fan base would probably think that it's going to happen and we probably will drop and again that would then pose more questions on the uh, where the club goes after that um can you know is 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 the drive there from the owner to to put money into the club again to try and get us out of the division um it's it's something we 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 doesn't think about um, as a worst case scenario, so we we just have to hope going forward that we can you know we can get a, a degree of safety this season. We've got to stay up this season. It's so crucial that we survive um, the drop, um, and it's we all hope and pray for that. And we'll go on from what we've just been talking about there with your thoughts on the future of the club. And I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it back round, and we're gonna start thinking a bit more positive again. Um, And we'll talk about um, your dream Newcastle United player. So that's somebody that would have played. It's a player who you've seen playing who's never played for Newcastle before.
3: Uh, Yeah, so I mean, someone that perhaps at their peak would love to have in the Newcastle team. Um, There's one player that I've always enjoyed watching who's no longer in the Premier League but still playing. And it's David Silva, who is at Manchester City. And he just could do everything well um, and help make them tick. I mean, in, in a great team, he was a great footballer um, and it just made things, difficult things, look so easy. Of course, he's helped by having top class players around him. But, um, you know, to, to to have a player like that in your side would be something really special. So I always enjoyed watching him, um, although I always feared what he could do on the pitch. Um, he was um yeah top class. So I think he'd be the one probably from the Premier League era that in, in the last four or five years that, that I would have wished would have been in the team. But actually genuinely, you know, realistically, I always wanted us to have to, to sign Callum Wilson. And I'm so mm-hmm. pleased that we did. Um he's he's been magnificent. And um you know I think when the fans are back and uh, all being well, he's fit again next season, it will be great, won't it, to be at St James's Park celebrate when he scores i'm sure he's looking forward to that as well um so yeah wilson was always a more realistic one um but but david silver for a a top class player is someone that uh, you know no chance but if you could just pick anybody out of the premier league i would have picked him
2: yeah i understand where you're coming from with with a player like david silver and i know you mentioned there that he yes he did have top players around him as well but I think when he first, he was at Man City for the best, well, for 10 years and you've got to think about the quality of players that would have been in that squad and I know Man City were on the rise then when he came in 10 years ago but there still would have been some players in that squad that he would have brought on and improved just by being there and around them and you've got to look at who's coming through from from like the Man City Academy side of things now and he certainly must have had some sort of impact in doing that because you've now got Phil Ford and breaking into their first team.
0: Mm. And he
2: was quite often seen as somebody that was in the mold of a David Silver. Um I think he's developing into a completely different type of player now. So it, it's not just the fact that you've got David Silver in your squad, it's the impact he he would have on other people around him.
3: Yeah. Well good players having good players around you helps make you better but if you're one of the best players you can help other players young and old Um, and that's really um, I think what you said there about about his influence is really significant. Um, You know, I think we probably all know ourselves in in Newcastle when, you know, we had Shearer up front um, leading the line, leading the team. You know, what a lift that must have been to the players behind him knowing that his reliability when it comes to scoring a goal, but defending court corners with his headers, um, holding up onto the ball, everything that he did in the latter years or in in earlier years, you know, being able to run away, get in behind that kind of thing. Um, it's yeah, when you've got top class players, everyone benefits. Um, I dare yeah,
2: say, I just, just to interrupt you there, you could no. you could even go far back as to say Kevin Keegan when he first came to the club in nineteen eighty two. And he was sort of the, the, the figure that galvanised the team into promotion in 84.
3: Well, I think twice he's had a transformative effect on the club as player and manager. Um, and I, I would agree with you. Um, yeah, for, for the club at that point, again, I wasn't around. But, you know, you you, you learn about that period and for them to get a star like, like him was a shock. Um, and a shock when he came back as manager as well. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, it but that's why he's he's so loved, isn't he, on the subject of Keegan. Yeah. Because he he did it as player, he did it as manager and he came back. Um sadly it, it ended in tears. Um <laughs> but but I don't think there's anyone that's done more for Newcastle United. And, and you know, that's with respect to Shearer and Sir Bobby Robson mm-hmm. and others, um, to to transform the club than, than Kevin Keegan.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we've we've almost gone full circle then. We've gone from talking about you're starting to go to games under Kevin Keegan's management of the club. And we've come back to Kevin Keegan almost at the very end. And I say almost at the very end because we're going to finish. Um it's something I've I've been aiming to do um, in, in coming up with the idea for this podcast is to 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 sort of get information out of the guests. Um, and Advice for anybody who maybe a, a bit younger, or anybody of any age really, who maybe has designs on getting into a career in the media side of things, sports media, football media. Um, so I'll I'll throw it open to you, uh, Razor, and we'll we'll talk about your advice that you would like to give to to people who maybe want to seek a career in the media.
3: Yeah, um, thank you, and I think it's always useful to try to pass on any um any advice or any knowledge. Anyone who is working in the media will have been in a position where they themselves needed a little bit of help from someone, um, some guidance and some advice. So I'm always happy to do that. And the first thing I would say that it doesn't matter how old you are or what your level of experience is. um, If you are thinking of getting into the media, whether you're studying for that or you want to change career, um, or doing like you're doing now, Daryl hosting a, a show, a podcast or, or presenting uh, for a, a channel uh, of which there are, are many now all around the country for every club, um, then you know, it can be a great decision. And I would say just trust yourself and back yourself because you obviously wanting to get into the media because... It's an area that interests you. But if you're trying to combine that with football or sport, your, your big passion, then it can be very rewarding. But you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone uh, at some point, whether that's broadcasting on the radio or TV, having written work, published uh, and everything that comes with with being in a position where, where you've done that. But um, you've got to take a risk and be out of your comfort zone. But trust yourself, trust the knowledge that you've gained and acquired over the years um, that has, has brought you to a position where you feel like you can pursue a career in the media, um, and, and age doesn't matter. Um, it's it's about you know, knowing your subject and and being then able to um, have the, I think the right personality and the right attitude towards a career. And by that, I mean we see a lot of people who who come in uh, who go on to do very well, and it's always the ones who work hard and have the best attitude that that go far, whether that's onto network TV or radio or um, other parts of the media. Those who come in and perhaps um, think that, you know, they are very, very good and they should be um, given a job straight away are the ones that don't always succeed. So following on from that, I would say that um, be prepared to start at the bottom, which is, I guess, where no one really wants to be in the end but you do have to work your way up that's important i did it all my colleagues did it you have to start somewhere Um, and if you're good then you won't be at the bottom rung of the ladder for very long but it can be fun as well just getting to know things and understand things purely from a radio point of view uh, working behind the scenes first perhaps before you go on air um, or just doing little bits on air before you're then ready to do a bit more Um, you might have to do that but um that is just that's just the way that it is i would also say as well it's important to get some experience now um that could be if you're a student doing like you're doing now daryl and, and um hosting this program being involved in other fan media or getting a, a placement in a professional organization like the bbc or sky or a newspaper it's difficult at the moment because of the pandemic because. I know we're limiting staff numbers in the building and and there's no um, provision for work experience for obvious reasons. But that will change and things will get back to normal. Experience is massive. Understanding the environment, how the media works, getting to meet people, um, getting a real insight that can can help you um, as much, if not more than a qualification. If you've got a qualification, that's important and you will need it. You will use it if you haven't got one. uh, Then experience will be even more important. Um, I would also say just a couple of final points. Have a plan, but don't be afraid to change it. I mean, I thought that I was probably going to pursue writing, even though I really wanted to do radio. But as soon as I got into the radio studio, my mind was made up. Um, and I've had colleagues who've come into radio and then got into TV. Uh, people who've been in broadcast media that have have left and gone and worked for football clubs, and which is actually another big way into the football media industry working at a a club um, because a lot of them have huge media departments now Um, and there's a lot of crossover and a lot of changing so it's good to have an idea but also um, good to not rule other things out and and I would say finally on this um, speak to people in the media um, contact them through Twitter I'm very happy to talk to anyone who might want to get on in the media and try and give some more focused advice If you have a favourite football writer and you want to be a writer, um, ask them if they'll check some of your work, give you some feedback or ask them for some advice, um, that kind of thing. Write to a radio station. If you wanted to do radio, and I love radio and I would always advise people to go and do some, and that can be contacting a student radio station, um, hospital radio, and, and hospital radio actually do commentaries of Sunderland and Newcastle matches um for their audience it's not widely available but um that's a a way into broadcasting that that's going to be key so things like that um are are really important that experience but that only comes about through contacting people and making contact so uh, those are the tips that i would give anybody now generally but if anyone does want to ask for any more advice um, i'll be very happy to help
2: right raise a bow Sorry, sorry, Razor. can you just do the last sentence again for us because I lost it there.
3: Yeah. Um, sorry, I mean, those are the, yeah, I'll say um, those are the the key things that I, I think um, anyone wanting to get on in the media should should focus on. But if anyone does want any more advice, then feel free to contact me and I'll be very happy to help.
2: That's great, Reza. Um, well, I'd like to say I think it's been a great little uh about an hour and three quarters, maybe an hour and 50 minutes we've been on going on for an hour. It's quite a long first episode to introduce this this series, but I think it's definitely uh, well worth it. Um, so I'd like to thank you for being the very first guest on Magpie Memoirs. Um, on behalf of everyone at Gallagher Shots, I can't thank you enough for, for being our very first guest for this series. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you um, and I'm hopeful that maybe we can get you back on again in the future. Maybe this time we'll be able to get you live on YouTube for a and a with the lads. Um, before we go, I'd better mention that you can catch Razor commentating with the legend that is John Anderson on every Newcastle United game live on BBC Radio Newcastle on FM Digital and Freeview. And you can also catch him on NUSC TV for a global audience. Um, he also appears every weeknight on BBC Newcastle's Total Sport phone in between 6 and 8. Um, and once again, Razor, I just, like I said, I just can't thank you enough for coming to see you and speak with us today. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Gallagher Shots podcast series of Magpie Memoirs, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, and with that, it's uh, goodbye from
3: Razor. Daryl, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be the first guest, and um, good luck with the show.
2: Thanks very much, mate. And it's a goodbye from me, and I'll see if episode two of the Magpie Memoirs with another special guest very soon.
0: Does an orthopedic condition or sports injury have you sidelined? Make your comeback with GW Hospital Sports Medicine. We offer services from neck to toe, including care for shoulders, hips, knees, ankles, and hands. Plus, we're the official healthcare partner of GW Athletics, the DC Furies, and the DC Revolution. Get back to doing the things you love. Learn more at gwhospital.com sportsmed or call 888-4GW-DOCS. Physicians are not employees or agents of this hospital.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?